So Paul begins this section, the Apostle Paul begins this section by asking a question, and then what he does is he spends the rest of the chapter imagining how the answer to the question he asked is no. And so he asks, has Israel stumbled so as to fall? He's just finished talking about the fact that his people, the people of Israel, the one, the the company of people to whom the rescuer was promised have rejected the rescuer. These are the ones who were so dead set on securing their own righteousness. And then Jesus comes into the race, interrupts their race for righteousness, shows them that they are radically unrighteous and that his righteousness is the righteousness they need. And they reject that. And so Paul's speaking to that rejection here. And he says, so did they stumble in order that they might fall? And of course, he answers immediately, right afterwards, right after that question, says, by no means, absolutely not. That's not why God ordained this series of events. And then he goes on to spend basically the rest of the chapter uh, showing, describing the reason for his no answer. And his main illustration throughout this chapter is, an olive tree, and he argues that God is at work to bring Israel to the place where the Gentiles started. So you've got two groups of people. You know, you've got, you've got, in a sense, the good people, the people to whom all of God's promises were given, to whom God's law was given. These are the churched people. These are the religious people. These are the good people. And then you have over here the Gentiles. These are people who the promises of God were not given back in the Old Testament. These are the outside the church people. These are kind of the immoral people, the bad people, so to speak. And so Paul says here, um, Israel has disbelieved for a reason, And then he goes on to explain what that reason is. And his main illustration, as I mentioned, is an olive tree. And he argues that God is at work to bring Israel to the place where the Gentiles started. And that is the low ground. The cutoff place. He wants, wants, in other words, for Israel to feel their cut-offness. But he does so for a reason. He doesn't end there. As we'll see in a minute, he does so for a reason. Because the low ground is where God works. It's where God dwells. It's where God meets us. As I've said on numerous occasions, grace always runs downhill and it meets us at the bottom. It doesn't shout from the top, climb. It reaches us at the bottom and says, it is finished. It meets us in our desperation. It meets us in our guilt. It meets us in our overwhelmness. But we will never, ever fully appreciate the radical grace that we have been given if we don't first realize how desperate we are. And so God is on a mission to make Israel, in this chapter, feel their desperation. Because until you feel your desperation, until you feel that you are at the absolute end of yourself, the end of your rope, there's no hope for you. As long as you are continuing to believe in your own rightness, in your own strength, in your own capacity, in your own ability, you'll never cry out like the Apostle Paul in Romans 7, O wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? And as we looked at, when we looked at Romans 7, it was God's law that put Paul in his place. It was the demands of God. It was Paul saying things like, I know what I need to do. I know the things I should think. I know the things that I should pursue. 
My problem is not that God's law is imperfect. It's perfect. It's holy. It's just. It's right. My problem is me. My problem is inside of me. I just, I can't do it. I can't pull it off. And the things that I want to do, those are the things that I run away from. And the things that I do, those are the things that get me in trouble. And so what Paul is attempting to show here is that God's, God's purpose in cutting off Israel is to graft them back in. So those are the two things I want to look at uh, briefly this morning, that God's first word is a pruning word and that God's final word is a grafting word. So let me just, let's just sort of unpack this a little bit. God's first word is a pruning word. Paul begins, and he says something interesting here. Seems almost kind of mean of God to do this, but he says that salvation came to the Gentiles, the outside the church people, the non-religious people, the people for whom God's promises were not given. Paul begins by saying that salvation came to the Gentiles in order to make Israel jealous. And you go, well, that's, you know, I mean, that's not even nice. Why would he do that? I mean, is it a nice thing to do? Is it virtuous to make someone feel jealous, to do something intentionally to make someone feel jealous? Well, this was, this was Israel's problem, and it's our problem. Uh, it's our natural default mode. Israel thought that they had rights. They felt entitled. They, they were proud. They were the ones that God had selected. They were the ones that God met on Mount Sinai. They were the ones that God made all of his promises to. We look back in Romans chapter 9 and Paul says, you know, I mean, these were, these were specially blessed people. It was to them that God gave the law. It was to them that God gave the prophets. He didn't give that stuff to the Philistines. He didn't give that stuff to, you know, the Amalekites. He specifically gave those special gifts to Israel. And as a result, uh, they were proud. They became proud. They were self-righteous. They thought they had rights. They felt entitled. They operated as if there were two kinds of people, us and them. There were two categories of people, according to the Israelites in Paul's day, us and them. We're in, they're out. We are blessed, they are cursed. We are good, they are bad. We are deserving, they are undeserving. We are special, they are not. Now, we can't necessarily get our minds wrapped around the cultural context of that day, but does that not describe us? That's our default mode. It's my default mode, anyway. There's us and them. I mean, part of what enables us to press on and strain forward is this idea that we're better than somebody, I mean, self-esteem is celebrated in our culture, and part of the fuel for self-esteem is this idea that we're better than somebody. It makes us feel alive when we can identify people who are worse than us. I mean, no matter what you've done or how bad you are, when you can identify someone who's worse, it makes you feel a little bit better about yourself. And you start actually thinking, okay, well, I may not be perfect, but I'm not like them. Remember the Pharisee? praying in the temple courts. Oh God, thank you. Thank you for not making me like that. And then, of course, the sinner praying, beating his chest, saying, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, you know, which prayer does God hear? Which prayer? Is it the desperate prayer or is it the proud prayer? And it's just our default mode. It's our default mode to believe in ourselves 
to trust in ourselves, to bank on ourselves. And so here, um, Paul's describing um, the Israelites, and he has back in his day. And I mean, just this idea that we are, we're better than them. We're better than they are. But when God showered his favor on the Gentiles, he leveled the playing field. You know, he said, okay, I'm going to invite, I'm going to invite the riffraff in. If you won't hear me, they will. Isn't that a, it's an unbelievable picture if you think about it. I said to a friend not long ago that I find it much easier to preach grace to people who did not grow up in church than I do to people who did. It's just, it's easier. It's amazing to me that you have inside the church people who get mad. You can't say that. You know, I mean, that's just, it's too radical. It's too free. And since the Christian faith is all about guarding and preserving morality, which is itself an immoral statement, ironically, um, because that's not what the Christian faith is all about. But since that's what lots of people inside the church have believed, they get mad and say, you can't say this kind of stuff. You You just can't say this kind of stuff. The same thing can be said to someone outside the church, at least people I've talked to, and they weep. I mean, they literally weep. Weep and go, is this too good to be true? Is it actually true that my sins can be forgiven? That my guilt can be atoned for? That I don't have to bear shame any longer because of the righteous work of another on my behalf? Is it really true that there is nothing that can separate me from God's love? But you don't know what I've done. God does. You don't know what I've said. God does. You you have no idea what you're talking about. God does. And he meets our sin with his forgiveness 70 times 7. Well, I say that kind of stuff to, you know, people outside the church and invite them to believe and they they weep. You say that same kind of thing to people inside the church oftentimes and they they rage. They rage. Always push back. Always. Um, not always, but lots of the time. And so here we have this um, unbelievable picture. You know, God is promiscuous in his distribution of love and grace and invites the riffraff in. And what does it do to the people inside? They get, they get jealous. Wait a second, you're ruining our whole system here. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I've been living my life believing trusting, banking on the fact that I'm better than them, that we are better than them. And now you're leveling the playing field by giving them the same rights and privileges and invitation that you've given us. Who are we anymore if we're not better than them? It's amazing how quickly we can build our identity on being better than someone. It's amazing. How we can, we, and we don't maybe think about it consciously that way, but it's amazing how quickly I can actually build my sense of worth on my own by looking at someone who I think is lower than me in one way, shape, or form. We do that all the time. We're constantly comparing ourselves to one another. Why do we do that? I and mean, we do that because we're trying desperately to secure our own rightness, as we saw two weeks ago. And now, if your rightness, if your righteousness is something that you have to achieve, well, this makes sense. Because now, you know, God invites the riffraff inside, and the people inside are like, hold on a second. We deserve to be here. They don't. And so Paul says, it made them jealous. God made them jealous. 
by inviting people in, by inviting the bad people in, by inviting the non-religious people in. God made them jealous, and the, the stiffs got upset about this. You know, wait a second. I mean, hold on a minute. I mean, it's amazing to me how this stuff still happens inside the church. You know, it still happens inside the church. Um, and so Paul is, Paul is saying, um, God did this to make Israel jealous. Not just to leave them in their jealousy. He, he did this to make them jealous for a reason, as we'll see in a minute. You know, it's amazing to me. God uses a variety of different things to knock us off our high horse so that we come to terms with our smallness and need. A variety of different things. We've all experienced it. Um, Charles Spurgeon's famous line that omnipotence has servants everywhere is appropriate here. So in this particular case, jealousy is being used by God to accomplish a great end. God is harnessing jealousy to do something freeing and liberating for the Israelites. I am... I, uh, at Liberate 2013, so not this past year, but the year before, uh, in my talk, I made a distinction between big L law and little L law. And for those of you who weren't here, which I'm assuming many were not, uh, let me just explain what I meant by that. Um, big L law comes from God. Okay, it's what we typically mean when we talk about God's law. It's, um, you know, it's outlined in the Ten Commandments. It's summarized by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. Little L law is something that's different. Little L law or law with a small L is any internal voice of judgment. Any, and we all hear this voice, any internal voice of judgment, that nagging sense that it's up to you or that you're not measuring up. And when we think about little L law, the one that plagues us regularly, even if you give no consideration at all to big L law, what God says doesn't matter to you. Ten Commandments, who cares? You know, Sermon on the Mount, who cares? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. I don't even believe in this stuff. Okay, maybe, maybe that's you. Well, little L law is much harder to escape. We all feel it as a result of being human. We all feel it. We all experience it. We all sense it as a result of simply being broken people living in a broken world with other broken people. Um, the, and, and this is how we experience it. I mean, the musts of life are so many, and every single one of us feel their force. I mean, think about a neighbor's new car can communicate to you, I'm not measuring up. Something as small as that. You know, just something good happens to someone else. And it makes you feel small and unaccomplished. Um, a beautiful person, as I've mentioned before. A beautiful person. Just a beautiful person can make, without that person opening their mouth, can make you feel like you're not measuring up. The success of your coworker, whatever the case may be. I mean, we all experience the musts of life. These things that communicate you're not measuring up. You better get to it. You better do more and you better try harder because you're falling behind. I mean, if you have a, a son or a daughter that's going off the deep end or giving you a hard time, well, and your friends have a son or a daughter the same age and they graduated at the top of their class and they're doing remarkably well and, um, you know, they're off to college and they love Jesus and all of that stuff, that in and of it, that reality in and of itself 
can feel like judgment on you. What did we do wrong? I mean, what, what, what could we have done differently? All of those things are things that we feel. You're going through, you know, a painful divorce and you can't really understand why it is that the people who know you and love you who are married seem to have it together and you don't. Things of relational tension, frustration, all of these things are fueled by this internal voice that says, do more, try harder, get it done on your own. That's what we mean when we talk about little L law. Um, I mean, this, the force of little L law is felt when we become, for instance, aware of an expectation that our spouse has that we can never seem to meet, a deadline at work, the pressure to fix our kids and so on and so forth. And in the case of Israel in Paul's day, God showered love and affection on the Gentiles, and this made the people of Israel feel jealous. It enticed little L law inside them. It enticed it, invited it, fueled it. And this, as Paul outlines here, it, it put them in their place. You know? Um, I mean, God just... It does, he does things like that. It's amazing how he will allow something painful and something difficult into our lives to remind us of just how small we are. Well, he's doing that for a reason. He's doing that on purpose. It's amazing how God can ordain painful circumstances, things that seem overwhelming, so that we finally come to the realization that we can't make it on our own. We can't pull this off. God never, ever promised an easy life. In fact, an easy life might be the most dangerous thing that could ever happen to us. A good, easy, somewhat pain-free, relational, tension-free life where things, where things come easy and things feel easy, I mean, that could be the absolute worst thing that could ever happen to us. I've said before that um, my good spiritual days are oftentimes more a hindrance to my love for Jesus than my bad spiritual days. It, I mean, it just seems so backwards because you, you grow up in religious circles or you grow up in church and you, for whatever reason, come to believe that good religious days are the goal of the Christian life. And I don't know about you, but it's not, that we, it's not that we try to have bad days. I'm not saying that, and neither is Paul in Romans 6. So are you saying that we should go out and sin more so that grace may abound? Of course not, Paul says. That's not what he says. He's simply stating a fact. It's just a fact. It's not an invitation. Go out and sin more so that grace may abound. He's not, it's an invitation. And he says right after that, by no means. That's not what I'm saying. What he is saying is it's a fact. Think about it. On your, on your good days when you feel strong, you might take a moment or two in the quietness of your own heart, in your own mind to go, God, you know, thank you. This is a great day. But you're a sinner. And what that means is you will take something good and you will very quickly begin to use it as a way to bolster yourself. Okay, so um, I won't get into the details of this because they are quite lame. Um, but... Um, there was a minor dust-up, a little kerfuffle, a brouhaha, a melee, if you will, that was brewing a couple weeks ago between me and a couple of people out there, all right, out there, um, the out there people. Um, and, uh, and as a result, things were said. 
you know, I mean, privately, publicly, blah, blah, blah. And I was just, you know, I was ready to go, man, ready to go. Um, and, um, and then a week went by and I'm talking to some friends. And I'm going, you know, I just kind of feel bad about uh, some of the things that I said. And I wish I didn't say some of those things now. Um, and so I, I, uh, I wrote a letter kind of apologizing, hoping it would entice them to apologize. No, uh, I just, I wrote a letter. I wrote a letter confessing sins that I did not commit. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I wrote a letter um, apologizing. I cried as I wrote it, literally. Felt phenomenal to write it. You know, like I just, it's like Jesus was saying, stand down. Just stand down. You know, I got this. All right. You don't need to, you don't need to fight for yourself. It's what I do. You don't need to defend yourself. You are unburdened of the pressure to defend yourself. I don't care what kind of injustice you have or will experience. Let me fight for you. I already have, and I promise I'll do it again. Um, and so I'm, I write this thing and I'm, I'm crying as I write it. It, it. it feels like a ton of bricks is being lifted off my shoulders. And I'm actually, for even just a few moments, believing what I actually preach. Believing it. Because Jesus won for me, I'm free to lose. Um, and no sooner did I publish that thing, and it went, <laughs> I mean, you know, everyone was paying attention to this little brouhaha. Um, and... I mean, an hour went by, an hour. I started feeling proud of myself. It was unbelievable, unbelievable. I mean, it was like, you really did a good thing, you know? You stood up, you were a man, you know? You did the right thing, you know? You took the high road, good for you. Good job, great job. You heaped burning coals on their heads, you know? Who doesn't love doing that from time to time? Uh, but I mean, literally, and I'm going, hold on a second. This is how twisted our hearts are. Yours too, by the way. Okay. This is how twisted our hearts are. Even when we do something good, we begin to believe that we are good. And believing that we are good is the worst thing that can happen to us. So that's what I mean when I say, is, are not our good spiritual days sometimes a greater hindrance to love for Jesus? than our bad spiritual days. I don't know about you, but I have felt closest to Jesus when I've been feeling the weakest, the most desperate. Well, that's the goal. You know, I've told that story before um, about that pastor who on his deathbed uh, said to his wife, I'm absolutely certain, this is the sort of just ironic, I'm absolutely certain that I'm going to heaven because I cannot remember one good work I've ever done. Isn't that just so counterintuitive? What he meant by that was, I know that nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to him for dress. I mean, foul I to the fountain fly. I mean, that, that's what he was saying. Not that he didn't do anything that helped people or that you know, God wasn't pleased with the things that he did or anything like that. It was just this idea that even the good works I did needed something in them to be pardoned and there is a pardoner. And that's how I'm getting in. Well, God does things like that. He brings us, he brings us low in order 
to set us high. I mean, when we start feeling proud or believing that we're not desperate or that we can make it on our own or that we're strong or whatever, God uses a variety of different laws to make us cry to him for help. I mean, when things don't go according to plan, when we face insurmountable odds, intense disappointments, it's at those moments that we are readied and riped by God's pruning to set us free. And that's what God's doing here with Israel. He invites the riffraff in to make them jealous, to entice jealousy even, to entice it, to make them feel unimportant, small, non-special. But he does it for a reason, and this is God's final word. If his first word is a pruning word, his final word is a grafting word. And this is good news for all of us. God brings Israel low to accomplish two things that Paul makes clear here. To extend salvation to the Gentiles, unbelievable, to the ends of the earth, and then, amazingly, to save Israel. So look at verse 32. This really is the turning point. Verse 32 of chapter 11. Paul writes, For God has consigned all to disobedience, brought them low, showed them their sin. God has, brought, God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. What a beautiful verse. God's first word is not his final word. God's first act is not his final act on behalf of sinners. And so he says um, that God brings Israel low to save Israel. God doesn't use his liberal love of the Gentiles to get Israel jealous for no reason. He does it for a reason. And verse 32 sums up God's two words incredibly. First, God has consigned all men to disobedience. He cuts them down to size. And you know this to be true. We get this from Paul's words in Romans 7. The words that we all feel, feel. I just, I can't do it. I want to, but I can't. And the very things I know I should not do, those are the things that I do. Who in this room has not felt consigned to disobedience? Consigned to it. I just, I can't make it. I can't do the right thing. And the interesting thing is, there are two different kinds of people. There are the kinds of people who go, I've never been able to keep a rule in my life. That's like me, all right? And then there are people like you who are like, I've kept every rule I've ever been given. You know, I've dotted every I, I've crossed every T. Well, who's in a better spot? We're both in bad spots. Rule breakers go to hell. Okay, so I'm in trouble. Uh, rule keepers are proud, which consigns them to hell. Well, that they're in trouble, too. We're all in trouble. I mean, literally, you go back to Romans chapter 3, and what does Paul say? I mean, everyone's in trouble. I mean, religious people, non-religious people, rule breakers, rule keepers, moral people, immoral people, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one's in a good spot with God. No one. There was one who was in a good spot with God. One who came and took care of the problem for all of us who were in a bad spot with God. That's what this whole thing is about. And so um, what we sense inside is this consignment to disobedience, this consignment to smallness, 
this, this inability to do what we know we ought to do. But that's not the end. That's just the bad news that gets totally overwhelmed by the good news. Okay, because God breaks us down so that he might raise us up and set us free. As I've said before, God's office is at the end of our rope. It's what my friend John Zoll says. God's office is at the end of our rope. I mentioned earlier, God's grace is always running downhill, not upstream. Always. Um, And God prunes the Israelites from the tree of his family so that they join the Gentiles lying in the brush heap on the ground. And that's when God gets down to his real work. That, that's when, you know, um, in Job, when Job, who's this righteous, Job chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, explained Job to be a righteous man, a rich man, uh, a man of great reputation, a moral man, a religious man, all of these things. And then God allows great tragedy and suffering to take place in Job's life, where he basically takes everything away. His health, his wealth, his family, even his friends. And Job feels alone, defeated, depleted, absolutely desperate and despairing, going back and forth with God, trying to figure out why this has happened to me. Why has this happened to me? God never, by the way, tells him, never get to the end of the book. God never, ever explained to him why he went through what he went through. It's ironic to me that, um, you know, explanations are a substitute for trust. That's why God doesn't always give them to us. I mean, that's why he just doesn't always give us the answers to our questions. Because, and and explanations, if God would have explained to Job, well, you know, uh, this is what happened. You see, the devil came to me and he wanted to test you and I wanted to vindicate me and I wanted to show him that you're the real deal and so I let him do these things, blah, blah, blah. Would that have brought Job's family back? We oftentimes want an explanation for what we're experiencing from God, from others, because underneath our desire for an explanation is this false idea that an explanation will relieve the pain. Explanations don't have the power to relieve pain and set us free. And so Job experiences all of this stuff, and then he gets to the end. And what does he say? I love this verse. What does he say? He says, before my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. How does someone go from hearing to seeing? Desperation. There's no way. There's no way. Whenever I hear religious people fighting about the need to sort of tame the radicality of God's love and grace or to rein it in because morality is the end goal and I don't believe that preaching that stuff will make people moral. That stuff won't keep my kid from smoking weed. So don't say it, okay? Um, I mean, whenever I hear that, um, you know, the first thought that goes through my mind, first thought that goes through my mind, instant diagnosis happens. And I go, the person hasn't suffered yet. They just, they haven't, they haven't been brought so low to where they finally see that the only way out is up. It hasn't happened yet. Do it gently, God, in their lives, but do it because What we find throughout the Bible, what we find here, what we find in Job and in many other places is that you can't go from hearing to seeing, from the gospel being a theological category to a functional lifeline. You can't go from here to there. 
unless you have experienced some significant smallness in your life. Brokenness, desperation. I love the way God is building this church. Every time we do a new members class, every single time we do a new members class, even though the testimonies are unique because everyone's got their own unique story, they all have one thread that runs through all of them. Every single one of them. It's unbelievable. And it's, I just, I came to the end of myself. I came to the end of myself. I mean, God is building this church with losers. Congratulations, all right? And the reason he's building this church with losers is because your pastor is a loser, all right? Um, But the good news is that God is doing something. He's gathering people, riffraff, broken, desperate, conscious of their need for grace kinds of people because that's where God works. It's where God does his best work. He's, He's building a church of seers, not just hearers. People who can honestly go, I... I I can't pull this off. So Jesus, thank you. Okay, we're going to get to this in just a second, Paul's reaction to all of this. But um, I mean, this is the good news for sinners. God only has mercy on the disobedient. He only resurrects the dead. He only gardens with branches that have been cut off. He doesn't have anything to do with the obedient or the living or the thriving plants because there aren't any. There are some who think they are, but before God and his demand for perfection, there are none. And so he only works with weak people because weak people are all that there are. I mean, Christianity is not about gathering up good people and excluding bad people for the simple reason that there aren't any good people. And in America, the church has got it wrong. It's not about gathering up good people. It's not about a good person telling other good people how to be better. I mean, that's that's not what this whole thing is about. The fact of the matter is Christianity is not about gathering up good people and excluding bad people for the simple reason that there aren't any good people because God isn't in the rehabilitation business. He's in the resurrection business. There's a big difference between those two things. Now, that doesn't mean that when you're resurrected, things happen, okay? I'm a different person, at least on the outside, than I was 20 years ago when God saved me. But none of us can claim before God that we are all that different on the inside. You still get angry. You still get jealous. You still become bitter. You still say things you shouldn't say. And even if you've, even if you've disciplined yourself not to say it, which is a good thing, you still feel it, which is a bad thing. Okay. I mean, if you are sin free, that's fine, but you're not, I'm not, we're not. And as a result, we can take great hope in the fact that God's primary work is not rehabilitation. It's resurrection. It's resurrection, that mercy is his heart. It is who he is. So it's good news that you can lose your way. This, this, the rest of this chapter regarding Israel is a great testimony to the fact that it's good news that you can lose your way and still be found. <laughs> Nobody is too lost for God. Nobody, listen to me. Nobody is too lost for God. 
It's amazing. He's the great hound of heaven. He's that we talk a lot about seekers, you know, back in the 90s, it was popular to start seeker-friendly churches. I get it, you know, don't put unnecessary Christianese before people who've never grown up in church. I, I love that. I believe that. I, that's the kind of church I want us to continue to be. Um, but it kind of missed the point that we're not seeking God. None of us seek God, Romans chapter 3 says. I mean, we're just, we're, we're, We may seek the benefits that only God can give us, but we're not seeking God. Who's the seeker, capital S? God is. God's the seeker. He's the one who seeks, and nobody is too lost for God. Nobody. Well, notice Paul's response to this, and I'll say this in conclusion. Notice Paul's response to this, verse 33 through 36. Okay, Lostness followed by foundness. Pruning followed by grafting. Look at what happens. Um, Look at how Paul responds. The only sane, rational response to the radicality of this good news. Look at what he says, beginning in verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How unscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. He breaks out in this doxological declaration. I mean, on his face. It's true. It's true. And what's the only response to this kind of mind-blowing, paradigm-shattering truth? What's the only response? Falling on your face and going, thank you. That's it. You want there to be an application to the sermon? Just fall on your face. Thank you. This kind of theology dictates worship, praise, I mean, just admiration. I mean, the radical gospel overwhelms, it lightens, and it sends you soaring, and it takes you so high that everything else looks small in comparison. Now, does that lead to a licentious, law-breaking life? Um, I want to tell you, I want to read something to you that I wrote, and I'm going to conclude with this. Um, And I wrote this after a radio interview where I was being interviewed, but the interviewer told me this story before we actually went on the air. He was a camp counselor one summer, and one of his responsibilities was to go around with another counselor and check the cabins every morning while the students were at breakfast. And in order to motivate them to keep their cabins clean. I've been in this situation before. It's terrible. Okay, it's terrible. Um, In order to motivate them to keep their cabins clean, awards were given at the morning assembly to the students who had the cleanest cabin. Okay? They get a star, you know, Snickers at the gift shop, whatever. Okay? Um, So one morning, and I'll start reading here. One morning, the counselors walked into one of the cabins only to discover that it had been intentionally trashed. The students thought it would be funny to break the law and do the exact opposite of what they had been asked to do. Clothes everywhere, food all over the floor, words written on the bathroom mirrors with soap, wet towels balled up in every corner. The place is a complete disaster. It's like my son's room. Um, Except he's not doing it intentionally. Um, So the two counselors walk in, they're they're speechless. I mean, they're just, it, it totally trashed. 
And the one looked at the other and asked, what should we do? And after pausing for a moment, the guy who was interviewing me finally answered, let's clean it up. And his buddy looked at him like he was crazy. Clean it up? Are you kidding? These punks need to be punished. I'm not cleaning up their mess. The other one said, well, I'm going to clean it up. And by the time I'm done with it, these kids will win the award today for the cleanest cabin. After some moaning and groaning, his buddy finally decided to help him. They cleaned the whole cabin while the students were at breakfast. They picked up and folded all the clothes, scrubbed all the soap off the bathroom mirrors, vacuumed up all the food, made all the beds, hung all the wet towels up to dry on the clothesline right outside the cabin. Then they left without saying a word to anyone. Not a word. When the students came back from breakfast thinking they had pulled off a great prank, they couldn't believe their eyes. They were the ones who were now speechless. They initially thought they were now going to be in double trouble. They sheepishly made their way to the morning assembly. When the award for the cleanest cabin was announced and they won, they couldn't believe it. Instead of being punished, they were rewarded. They all found the two counselors who had cleaned up their wrecked room and begged for forgiveness. And according to the guy who was interviewing me, those boys kept the cleanest cabin for the rest of the week. What those boys experienced was what theologians call double imputation. Not only did someone else bear their punishment, having to clean up the miserable mess they made, but they were rewarded for someone else's righteousness. As my friend Scotty Smith recently said, the gospel isn't merely the absence of all condemnation, it's also the fullness of God's delight lavished on us in Christ. And notice, and this is how this ties into Paul's reaction here, notice the result of this irrational act of grace toward these boys was not worse behavior. It was sorrow, transformation, conviction, and appreciation. These punks, in other words, were punked by grace, and they would never forget it. Okay? Well, this is the irony. See, many fear... That grace-delivered, blood-bought freedom will result in loveless license. But is this story and your life testify and illustrate redeeming, unconditional love alone? Not law, not fear, not punishment, not guilt, not shame. Redeeming, unconditional love alone carries the power to compel heartfelt loyalty to the one who gave us and continues to give us what we don't deserve. So this gospel declaration of Paul regarding the Israelites, regarding sinners like you and me, compels heartfelt loyalty. Is it, how can he do this for me? <laughs> Is God blind? Does he not see into my heart? Does he not see what I've done? Does he not look into my past? Has he not looked into my future? Does he not only see what I have done? Does he not see what I will do? Tonight? Tomorrow? I mean, things I'm already planning to do? Does, does he not see that stuff? How, how can this love be? It doesn't make sense to us because we think in conditional categories. We're in this worldly categories, but the good news is this this love is not from this world. It's otherworldly. It breaks into our conditional categories and announces something so mind-blowing, so radical, that the only proper response is worship. To Him be the glory forever and ever. 
and ever for this love that he's bestowed on me that not only did I not deserve, I could not have earned. Amen.